the Heavy Hole. My name is Tom. I'm Big Will, a.k.a. Uncle Buck. Hi, Will. This is Justin here. How you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Fine. Uh, but I see you brought a friend <laughs> with you today. Yeah, we got we have somebody else uh, via uh, via satellite coming in. Musical powerhouse, power lifter, just a man of man of many uh, strengths and talents. Amazing feats of strength and agility coming onto the show today. True. Uh, we got Rick Jimenez. Okay. Uh, of Extinction AD fame. Yeah. This is hell. Yeah. Clanging and banging. Okay. Stiff shots podcast. Wow. Rick, how you doing, man? What's up, guys? I'm good. I'm psyched to be here. I'm I'm psyched that you're here, and I'm psyched that Justin nailed that intro. Take Justin. All right. Thank uh, you. Uh, that, that, yo, man, you guys are cranking. But, yeah, we, we got you right here. We normally do the little intro when we joke around. I talk about my cat, but not tonight. Um, Rick, we're glad <laughs> we finally got you on the it's, it's been a while. We've been talking to you. Um, and shout to your bandmate, Ian. Uh, he and I were co-workers for a while and all that, man. Uh, you know, maybe one day we'll talk to him. But we got you here, man. And, you know, we always, we always start out. Like I told you, we go right to the beginning. Uh, we're going to talk about your podcast and Extinction AD, your most recent uh, band that's been uh, all around and all that. But you're originally a Long Island guy, right? Yeah, still born and raised. Oh, what part of Long Island, if you don't mind my asking? You don't have to give your address. Sir. <laughs> Smithtown. I was uh, born in Smithtown, went to high school and middle school and elementary school, all in Smithtown. Up until I graduated, I moved to Patchogue. And then I've been all over the place since then. Now I'm in Huntington. Welcome. Wow. Mm. All right. Yeah. We're, yeah as, as you know, so so we. Um, H, so H ton the best ton, as they say. <laughs> yeah. 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 The best ton, the best one. Um, as a local rapper said one time, he didn't make it. But uh, uh, so Rick, are, we, we, as I always say, the listeners know where I'm going. Are you from a particularly musical family, or a family that's like friendly to heavy music in any way? You know, my immediate family, like my mom and my dad, neither one of them were musicians, but fans of music. There was always records playing when I was growing up. My, I have two older sisters. Both of them were very musical growing up. I just was obsessed with music from immediately. Some of my earliest memories of life have to do with music. You know, I, you know, I actually, I, my memory goes back like really, really far. Like people are like, "Oh, you're crazy! I don't actually remember that." I remember my first birthday. People are like, you don't remember your first birthday. It's like, I fucking remember my first birthday. What Damn. happened on your first birthday? I remember my, <laughs> my mom had to work, and she was, like, upset and, like, bummed out. She's like, oh, I feel bad. I'm leaving you on my birthday. And I don't. I obviously didn't say this, but I remember in my head being like, hey, it's fine. It, you have to go to work. It doesn't wow. really matter. And then she came home with, like, a Yankees balloon, like one of those, like, Mylar balloons. Because um, I was talking to my mom about this a few years ago. She's like, you don't remember this. I was like, yes, I remember you had to go to work. You brought home a balloon. She's like, you remember that balloon? I was like, hey, man, I remember everything. That's wild. Yeah. That's, hey, hey that's, mom, it's me, your one-year-old son. It's all good. It's all fine. Well, you guys remember. Yeah. Being, I know money's important at this age. We were we were talking before we started recording the interview, and I was like, yeah, Artificial Brain played with Extinction AD a few years ago. And you're like, yeah, August 19th. And I don't even remember what year it was. Like, I know it was like in the last three or four years. So I, I totally believe that, man. That's, yeah, that's it was crazy. 2015. That was the uh, Faith Killer record release show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Fantastic. So uh, I was I was working at the Paramount, and I left early to go play the show, and it was my birthday. Somebody smashed into my car. I called Pete, our bass player at the time. I was like, "Hey, man, my car's messed up. You got to come pick me up." So uh, that happened. And then we played that show. That show was <laughs> rad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rest in peace to Revolution, man. Yeah, it was a good, it was a good venue, man. 
Um, but but all right. So so going back um, as a kid, when do you start to notice? Is it punk rock? Is it metal? Is it hard? When do you start to notice the more aggressive and kind of independent or underground stuff? Uh, I think the underground stuff came in around the early 90s because before that you know my first favorite band 1983 i was three years old Def leopard that leads to you know what poison and motley Crue, which leads to queens which leads to metallica then everything opens up and everything Mm -hmm. changes so Mm -hmm. i was like a hard rock metal guy and then eventually i discovered punk and then from punk i discovered hardcore and then you know it's this vicious circle of of heavy music but um as far as like the underground stuff, you know, like I said, it starts with Metallica and they were already huge at that point, you know, and Justice for All had been out, the Black Album was about to come out. So from my point of view, when I discovered um, Slayer and Pantera, that was underground to me. And, you know, not realizing that, hey, this is major label shit, that's not underground. But to me, you know, in a 12 year old, that's that's underground. But who's turning you on to Def Leppard at three? MTV, <laughs> man. Yeah. <laughs> and Dude, just, I, I, and you're, I mean, obviously, we just established that you're retaining this information, which is phenomenal. Yeah, I did. Dude, I used, to, I used to get pieces of Oak Tag. I don't even know if Oak Tag exists anymore. I think it's uh, all just poster board now. <laughs> but I used to go and get pieces of Oak Tag and draw guitars and then cut those guitars out and then mimic the videos. And it was so crazy. I would mimic the videos like... Um, everybody's right-handed you know most guitar players and i would do it backwards to mimic them so i was <laughs> i was convinced until i got my first real guitar that i was left-handed oh that's amazing <laughs> that's so fun i have a i have an oak tech story that i hope to bring about later in this in this episode but uh huh. be, that's just beautiful uh, <laughs> yo i'm also like flying on a 16 ounce red bull right now so i'm just like i'm gonna be blabbering all night no, that's good. That's good. That's what we want, man. That's what we want, man. We, you know, we got some questions for you, man. Um, all right. So, uh, well, I was going to say, when does it turn into you picking up a guitar? But you're like, already you got the oak tag. You're ready to go. When? So, so tell us about actually getting the real guitar, like going from oak tag to real life guitar in your hands. When does it happen? Just plug it in, Will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just use your imagination. Yeah. All right. I think it was... 1992 I'd been wanting to play a real instrument for so long and it was always between whether I wanted to play guitar or play drums you know it's playing oak tag guitars which turned into playing plastic guitars and then just taking like brushes you know those like circular brushes that chicks curl their hair with in 1987 yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about so I would take my mom's two brushes and just play drums and I was like I understand this I know like I don't have any drums but like that's a hi-hat and this is a snare drum but uh, my mom's friend's husband was a musician, and he had guitars. And I would be like, oh, my God, I always want to play a real guitar. So finally, and like I said, we were broke as hell. We were living in Smithtown, but there was like a little dark cloud of a cottage complex in Nesconset where like all the trash bags and drug addicts lived. And that was my section of Smithtown. So we were broke as hell. But um, my mom, essentially single parent, you know, uh, whether, no matter what, if we lived like shit, she was still trying her hardest to make sure that, you know, the things that we really, really wanted, even if like, oh, well, you know, you should probably eat better. It was like, well, you really need a guitar. So I bought a 
$65 acoustic guitar from Cornet Music in uh, Smithtown. Yep. And it was like, hey, we're going to buy you this guitar. Um, you're going to have to take a lesson every week or whatever. And if you, the same story every everybody has. If you stick with it, you know, we'll move on to the electric guitar. So I got that guitar and I just never stopped playing it to like annoying levels. Like my, <laughs> my sisters hated it. And not because it's like, oh, you're playing music all the time, but like, yo, it's fucking 6 a.m. Shut the fuck up. But <laughs> <laughs> from day one, you know, I went to my first guitar lesson. Um, I had a Queensryche Empire shirt that nice. I still have now. Nice. Damn. Um, and the guitar teacher didn't even know that he had a lesson. I'm going down the stairs. He's going to leave. And they're like, hey, you have a lesson. He's like, oh, what the fuck? So he gives me this lesson. He's like, oh, you like Queensryche? Let me show you how to play the uh, intro, Silent Lucidity, which is just, you know, one note and then two open strings and different notes, the easiest thing in the world. But that's what I learned on my first guitar lesson. I was like, oh, my God, like, <laughs> I'm going to make it. That's great. That's also that shirt, uh, just as good of an investment as uh, as as a 401k actually right now. I, dude, if, yeah. if I, I went to that, if I went to that new store in Huntington, I could probably sell it for like four hundred dollars. Saw that place. Ooh. I might have to go do it. I actually have a Queensryche Empire and a, an Operation Mindcrime um, like patch. I don't know. If I, it might be blue grape merchandising. I got a I got a couple of little blue grape merchandising yeah, patches. You know, like I'm, I'm drooling right now. This isn't my podcast. We got to get back to it. Like, like but yeah, the, the, I saw that new you store. You got thousands Huntington. of dollars of patches. Right I didn't now, go right? in there yet, but I thought of Justin. It's like a retro store I saw that opened up yeah, right there by, by the tattoo parlor there, right? I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I haven't been there, but I've driven past it and been like, oh, I should go in there. And it's like, I know I'm going to see a shirt I want that's like 400 bucks. I'm like, no, man. Yeah. I'm walking in there like, where are the rat shirts at? <laughs> yeah. that's, that's all I'm Do you finance? <laughs> <laughs> Finances. That'll be the next thing. All right. So you get the acoustic guitar. You're playing the acoustic guitar. You're playing Silent Lucidity at 6 a.m. for your sisters, and they're pissed off. It's crazy. <laughs> um Tell us about your first electric guitar. That must have been a moment, because, I mean, it, it sounds like you're having these, like, aha moments all along the, the way. Yeah, you're, like, building up to it, so yeah. when you finally, like, first plug in. Like, oh, dude, I was dying for an, for an electric guitar for months. I think it actually lasted, like, two years before I had an electric. Um, and like I said, it was just, like, we didn't have the budget for it. And one of my closer friends at the time had just transitioned to an electric. He got um, a Fender Strat. I mean, it was the 90s. Everybody wanted a Fender Strat. Um, so I was like shopping around, shopping around. I was like, okay, we have a budget. The budget was $125, which in, at that time even sucks. But, you know, that's probably like now. But, oh, you have a budget like 400 bucks. <laughs> so I spent months going to different guitar stores looking for the right guitar. And I was convinced that I wanted, like, a Les Paul copy because I wanted a black Les Paul with white trim. Classy. So I finally found one, but it was uh, too expensive. And uh, the clerk was like, look, you don't want to get this guitar. I think it was like a Honer or something. So knowing now what I know then, I'm glad I didn't get that guitar. <laughs> but, I mean, there's not, like, a great ending to this story because the first guitar I got was an Epiphone Strat copy. Which oh, boy. It did the job for the first year of having an electric guitar. It makes sounds. Yeah. It makes sounds. I got a 15-watt <laughs> crate amp, and it had overdrive, 
So it was like, all right, cool, man. I could hit an E chord, and it you know might sound like Megadeth. Uh, yeah, I'm basically ACDC right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what happens when 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 those things come together. <laughs> well, we're talking about Megadeth and ACDC. You said Queens. What is what's some of the first stuff you learned when you got the electric? Yeah, what were you jamming on that Epiphone copy? Symphony Destruction. That was the first nice. song I learned yeah, start to finish. Yeah, yeah that yeah. me and Tom when we first started playing, like uh like actual you know, when we discovered thrash and stuff like that, like we'd be jamming that in his kitchen like all the time. Yeah. It's a good The one. crazy thing is is I had the electric for about uh, six or seven months before I learned how to palm mute. Like nobody ever taught me how to palm mute. And I went to go jam with some of my other friends and he's like, All right, we're gonna play this song. I was like, All right, cool. So I'm like, I see he's palm, or I hear that he's palm muting, but I don't know how to do it. So I'm just kind of like faking it and kind of just like uh, raking the strings because I'm like embarrassed. I don't know how to do this. How you make that sound? Yeah, and he's like, oh, this is how you do that. I was like, oh my god, I've been trying to figure that out for months, but I'm keeping this to myself. I don't want anyone to know that I suck. So, dude, learning how to palm mute—that's like cooler than losing your virginity. <laughs> so it might open more doors. Yeah, it's got le- it's got more legs. You yeah. know, it's got more longe- longe- yeah. <laughs> Won't hurt. But you I had as much. that Epiphone for a couple of months, and then you know I progressed so much as soon as I had the electric. So like I said, I loved Megadeth. I'm like a huge Marty Freeman mark, especially in the mid '90s. So I was like, I need a better guitar. So I go to guitar, or I went to Sam Ash. And it was like, all right, where's the Jackson section? Yeah. And I got my first Jackson. Where's my pointy there, headstocks at? That's... Yep, the dinky reverse. And that was when I was like, okay, I'm I'm actually legitimately serious about playing guitar and writing music and trying to find an actual band instead of just, you know, fucking around at home. So how old were you at this point? 14. Okay. I believe 14. Um yeah, because I think it was around the time Euthanasia, Megadeth Euthanasia, was about to come out. So a perfect segue. So, like, tell us a little bit about, like, uh, your first couple of bands. Like, uh, you know, what are you doing? Tell us all the, the bad stuff. What so happened? the hard thing... <laughs> <laughs> I know, this, this is where my life took a turn for the worse. Tell us when you quit your first job. No, okay. <laughs> The hard thing in Smithtown was finding kids that liked metal that weren't already in bands. Because there was so few of us as it is. And there were so many kids that were like grungers. But I don't want to play in a Nirvana cover band. And I, you know, I don't want to play Pearl Jam and Soundgarden songs. I definitely didn't want to play like, well, this is kind of going in the future. But I don't want to play Dave Matthews and Fish and that fucking stuff. Oh, God. Yeah, no, who, who, who? In their right mind, who likes Marty Friedman <laughs> would be okay with that step down. Like, yeah, I mean, I get the it, only fish. person you I got could... trampolines, but can you shred? <laughs> the only person I can respect that loves Dave Matthews is uh, Andy Dwyer, which is uh, a mouse rat Parks and Rec joke. Uh, yeah, mm. oh, got, yeah, you know, got flexed on. Missed it. Sorry, medium, yeah. oops, medium jokes. But just tear, was, tears was... under Blues Traveler. Let's be, let's be real. <laughs> There was kids in my school, like I said, that were in metal bands, and I was always trying to, like, find metal friends. Yeah. None of my metal friends were either good enough or even had the ambition to actually start a band. Mm-hmm. So there was kids I would play with, but 
you know, and this is kind of where punk comes in and how I discovered punk is mm. I had other friends that were into the, you know, the, the more mainstream bands that started playing punk around that time, like Green Day and Rancid and Offspring. And my best friend in the world, Johnny Moore, had gotten a bass. I was always trying to get him to play bass. I was like, dude, you play bass, I play guitar, we'll start a band. So we started doing that, and the first band that we were in was called the Shogun Decapitators. <laughs> That's, That's fun, great. Yeah. yeah. It was just me, him, and our other friend, Anthony, and just like any song we could learn. And like I said, you know, we kind of all came from different uh, musical backgrounds. So it was like, all right, let's learn this Green Day song. Let's learn this Rancid song. And we would just meet up and play these songs. Like, I would play guitar, John would play bass, and Anthony would sing. No drummer. And we did that for a little while until eventually uh, I had met Chris Mazzella, who went on to... Um, Chris Mazzella, John Moore, and myself went on to start Subterfuge, which was our first real, real band. And same thing, Chris played guitar, John played bass, I played guitar, and we had convinced John's brother to get a drum set for Christmas that year, hoping he would play drums. <laughs> so he gets that drum set, and he doesn't give a shit about it, like, at all. So Christmas Ellis shows up, we're about to have our first band practice, I'm like, you know what, fuck it, I'll just sit down and play drums. The first time I ever sat down at a drum set, and I wound up playing drums for eight years. <laughs> Those combs take you a long way. Well, you you, you mentioned <laughs> subterfuge, and I do remember subterfuge get, getting out there and playing around on Long Island back in the day, right? Yeah, yeah. We started uh, January '96, mm -hmm. and we played until October of 2003. Like I said, we started as just a three-piece band of a drummer who's never played drums before in his life and then a bass player and a guitar player who never played with a drummer before. And we were just playing, you know, covers of, like, punk songs. Like, like I said, Green Day and Rancid and Clash and Sex Pistols and Ramon songs. And we did that for a couple months till it was like, all right, let's start playing our own songs. Yeah, and it's funny because you talk about being into metal and kind of getting into punk because you have friends who are into punk. In, in Huntington growing up, I was into metal, um... And I actually got into punk and stuff like that because the only other people into underground music in my neighborhood were some of the guys that were in the band Contra. And they yep. had the, the Hobo House here in Huntington, up in Huntington Station, where they would have basement shows and stuff like that. I mean, I, I'm pretty, you played shows with Contra, or you were like around that scene with Subterfuge, right? Yeah, especially in the beginning, we were more of a punk band before we, you know, eventually became essentially a straight hardcore band. But mm. yo, uh, Tony Balls yeah, from, Anthony, Con from Contra. Yes, yes, shout to him. He's one of my personal training clients. Wow. Wow. He, he knows me as Death Metal Will, man. We went to high school together, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. The, the best dude. He, He's good, man. Stories for days. Yeah. 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 I, we got to get him on the podcast for real. I, this is like a light, light bulb moment over my head. Why haven't I had and You're Tony, going right Anthony now. Greco, Tony Balls on the show, man? Okay. Let's do it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, you know, um, that's unfortunately a, bit, a little bit before my time, like 2003, like, WWF The Music Volume 4 is the only shit I'm listening to. <laughs> yeah, well, so I was listening to the Bushwhackers theme song in my childhood wrestling phase, That's man. Good. Whenever I saw, like, uh, Crocodile Hunter, that was what was going through my head. Uh, yeah, man, I, I'm listening to the Bushwhackers theme song every day still. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. Um, good picking. Uh, so 
All right, so, well, it's funny, too, because you mentioned Contra. You talked to um, uh, Tony Balls. It's funny. I knew him before they called him Tony Balls. But um, I, I talked to John Berg, the singer of Contra. Yep. Um, and we're, we're planning on trying to get him on the show. Right now, we're, we're very booked up, but we want to get him on eventually, too. Because he still, he lives up in Vermont, but he's still in a punk band now, The Path and all that. Shout out to Oh, him. his band rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but, all right, so, so steering back to you, though. Uh, shout out to all those guys. And it's funny because, you know, it's it's just like there's kind of like a parallel there because I grew up kind of in high school with those guys and I knew about punk and all that stuff through them. So uh, you guys end up navigating that because on Long Island in the 90s, and I've talked about this with like I think the guys from Sky came, uh, Brian Parker from Sky Came Falling was recently on and the guys from Tension were on. There was like two scenes. There was like the hardcore scene where it was, you know, like your tension, your VOD, your indecision. And then the, I always called it, respectfully, the food not bomb scene, where mm-hmm. it was more your politically active, socially active, like social political cause active punk bands, like Contra and that, that kind of scene, man. What, did you, you want to talk about that, like navigating the two scenes? Was that your perception? Oh, absolutely. The thing that was difficult from my point of view, being a member of Subterfuge, like I said, we started like a shitty cover band but quickly we figured out what's what you know we may have um started playing green day and ranted songs but quickly you know you find minor threat you find dri you find these other bands and you get real pretty quick yeah yeah the the early 80s american hardcore punk scene is like my favorite era of music in general but by late 97 98 99 subterfuge was too punk to be hardcore and too hardcore to be punk so we were never accepted fully by either of those scenes in that time at least and that was always such a bummer man because like my favorite band of that time was sick of it all and to me they were the perfect melding of not just hardcore but new york hardcore and punk rock and i still think that's what that band embodies and i never understood like well we can't play with tension and overthrow for some reason like we're not accepted but then we can't play with uh contra or um the strike bastards and that was like well i feel like we fit in with both of them um and people who did like our band because like i said oh we were nobodies it's not like people knew us from the scene like they might have been like oh i see that little kid at shows sometimes but that's essentially it (laughs) The people that did like our bands would be like, oh, you fit, you guys fit in perfect with Contra. And some people would be like, oh, you guys fit in perfect with Overthrow. But we could never get in with either of those scenes aside from just going to the shows as spectators. Yeah, it, it, it definitely seemed um, uh, like, I, I, I guess exclusive is the word on some level, man. You know, like you kind of had to be into, you know, like with the booking and sort of that sort of thing. It was a little more insular back then. Um, and maybe also too, because you know that was like pre-internet age, and it was a little, you know, a little more underground style, you know. So yeah, we were also a little naive too. Like we didn't really know what we were doing. Like we understood what a hardcore scene and what a punk scene was from watching Another State of Mind on VHS and watching the decline of Western civilization. <laughs> but the reality of that is so much different. As a, you know, we figure, oh, we're in a band or we're going to these shows. Why don't people pay attention to us? It's like, well because no one knows who the fuck you are. Everybody's in a band and everybody goes to shows. So it's not all that, you know, everybody was so exclusive we were left out. We didn't really understand, you know. We yeah. were, And like I said, 
In my opinion, being 18 in 1998 is a lot different than being 18 in 2020. Yes. Like, you're still like a stupid little kid. I mean, I'm 40, and I still don't know shit about dick. <laughs> I'm pushing 40, and I got these two guys to push buttons because I don't know anything about technology, man. I'm, it's sad <laughs> at the end of the day. But you're welcome. Yeah, I'm, I'm dumb as hell, so I don't, it doesn't matter. But it's <laughs> no comment. It's fine. So, so did listen. Did did that ever break? You know, because you guys obviously played shows and and you moved on from sub sub <coughs> subterfuge. <laughs> yeah. So you know what it was? It was our fifth year. We had a five year anniversary show, and it wasn't like that. We made it a big deal to anybody except for ourselves. So we said, you know, fuck it. We're going to stop trying to fit in. We're going to stop trying to get in with any scene. Yeah. We're a hardcore band. We're just going to play our own shows, and who the fuck cares about anything? That show was the first time that we played where people we don't know came specifically to see us. And we're like, oh, my God, what the fuck? It was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And from there, within, you know, that was the beginning of 2001. By the end of 2001, granted, they might have been small hardcore shows, you know, when, like, that 150 or 200 people are there. We were headlining shows. It was like, I don't, I don't know what the fuck happened. Maybe because we, you know, added a, a guitar player and Chris wasn't just playing guitar and singing. He was just a singer, which I think in the 2000s, that was a big deal. You couldn't be like a hardcore band if you didn't have a, like a front man holding a microphone. Yeah, like yeah. the whole perception of it, which I think is bullshit, but that's the reality of, the, of uh, life. But I mean, you know, the last three years of band 2001 two and three uh as far as long island hardcore goes i was very confident in where we were and i felt very fulfilled we had tons of friends we there was so many bands that were around shows were big and not just because of us there was so many bands it was every band raised the other band up you know um in my opinion that's a bit of a forgotten time frame of long island hardcore mm -hmm. bands like uh strong point the backup plan gabriel uh, maybe tomorrow, and these are all bands that sound totally different from each other. Also, Straight from the Path came out of that scene. Mm -hmm. um, to a certain extent, Crime and Stereo came out of that scene. Yeah, um, and I know I'm missing tons of bands, but it was a, a love for enemies. Mm. Uh, it was a really cool time where the goal wasn't to get onto the shows with the national bands. It was, let's play our own shows and just stack every show on the Might of Princes, Domain. All these bands that are so different from each other, you put any four or five of those bands on a show, you know every member of every other band that's not on the show is going to come. And all of a sudden, we're playing a show in fucking Eastport, which is in the middle of goddamn nowhere. There's farms out there, and there's 200 kids there. So that was like such a sense of accomplishment not only just for subterfuge, but to feel like not only do people like our band, but we were a part of building a, a bit of a, a scene that wasn't a Nassau scene and a scene that wasn't um, the goal wasn't to play a Poison the Well show with the Sahara, even if that may have happened to some of those bands. That wasn't the goal. Um, like I said, we played uh, for eight years. Uh, we started in 1996. The first time subterfuge played a show with a signed hardcore band was December of 2001 when we played with Bane. 
I feel like nowadays that's like crazy. Like, oh, we started a band last week. Oh, cool. We're going to open up for whatever national signed band is yeah. coming around. We yeah. sold 300 tickets. Now we're on the show right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, you know, people forget Bane. Some people might have forgotten Bane was huge right there. 2001 right there. I mean, they were getting out there. Yeah, they were people, playing big shows. Motherfuckers crying at Bane shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah people love. Like, I mean, I, I think Bane is a cool band, quality <laughs> music, you know. But uh, yeah, there's people that love fucking Bane. I, I, I mean, I think you're totally right. Like, there's this, uh, this, this weird creativity percolating on the island that, like, like creating bands, like from, like from you guys to Alfie to On the Mind of Princes. Like, what a spectrum of sound. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and you know, we're just we're waiting for the Nef- Netflix doc. Is what I'm well, saying. Well, I mean, like, hopefully we can, because you know, you mentioned Strong Point and maybe yeah. tomorrow. Those are both bands that featured Tom Anderer, friend of the show, uh, my bandmate in Buckshot Face. We're mm-hmm. going to get him on eventually. And as I mentioned, we're talking to John Berg. So I, I, you know, this is obviously people know us more for being death metal and grindcore and creepy old guys in but the we basement. Like bagels, but, also. You know, we're from Long Island, <laughs> and I grew up with that scene kind of being adjacent. Like I said, because of my friends, I grew up with Tom Ander and. And a lot of his friends and, um, you know, the guys like John Berg and, and uh, Tony Balls and, and their band. So, like, I kind of saw all that and I collected a lot of the music along the way. And there is a story to be told. Absolutely, man. You know, hopefully, you know, some Yo, people remember that. How the best dude is Tom Anderer? Yeah. He's uh, great. We could go there. <laughs> he's, he's, <laughs> I mean, he's probably, he's a ty- he's the type of person where I consider him my best friend. But I feel like there's probably like a list of two dozen people that also feel that way about him. Like he, oh, like I, I have to share him as my best friend. He's just because he's the best one there is. You know, you know it's like, too bad because I'm not in contact with him as much as I should be for you know for some reason. Tom Anderer is such a good dude that the in, huh. this is so stupid. The thought of Tom Anderer being upset about something <laughs> bums me out. <laughs> mm, mm, yeah, Ugh, that's scary. Yeah, that's not, and uh, I've seen it. I, I've been in a band with him a long. I've known the guy. I've known Tom since we went to Finley Junior High School here in Huntington, like seventh grade. I go back with Tom like almost oh, like tw- t- between twenty five and thirty years. It's it's sick. So cool. But but yeah, and like I, like I, me and him have been upset at each, at each other, and I and that's a you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to be like yo I bu-, you don't you don't want to go home at night and go to bed and be like yo I, I bummed Tom out I pissed Tom off like because that's like it's like why like no you can't like don't hurt Tom he's a good dude he's doing good mate he had a daughter and he's got the nice crib and he's he's living his life man he's doing his best thing man he got married. He's, he's living his best life, but um, shout out to him. As a side story, yeah. uh, I hate bumming Tom out as well. No, yeah. no, I man, like don't. I, I feel like I'm always bumming. You'll Tom. always regret it and apologize, and then he'll always accept the apology in a way that makes you feel worse because you're like he's such a good dude. All right, all right. Yo, so we, speaking speaking of that, yeah. before we just spend the whole time, I know, with me I know, blabbing right. about he, he's a good ancient dude. history. Welcome to Tom, the Tom Hole. Yeah, Tom sang in a band called Craig. And Craig never gets oh, spoken no. about. Oh, and no. I'm not saying this definitively, but. Speaking about the other the, guys in Craig. <laughs> does the singing, screaming, metalcore thing mm-hmm, happen mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or at least explode the way it does without Craig at the bottom floor? And, like the foundation is, is what I mean. Thank you. Ma- maybe, but man, maybe Thank not. You. 
Thank you. Yeah, I'm so I'm in the dark on that. People so don't I'm know. Going, I'm going to school tomorrow. This is a, this is real. This is real Huntington shit. And shout to um, uh, Rico and Paulie and Maluk, the other guys uh, from from Craig. I grew up with all, I grew up with these guys. I mean, you're talking like high school stuff for me. Yeah. And um, yeah, they were in a band called Craig. The lore is that I was told was that Craig was the name of the original drummer who lasted one practice and never came back. That's fucking so brilliant. They named the ba- that's the and lore. They named the band. They named the band. That's him. a story that's that so the guitarist Rico told me that many years ago. I can't. So I don't sick. know. Maybe he was. You know, sometimes you know he was a ball buster. Maybe he was busting my butt. I, don't I know, know a few bands that could have been named Craig based yeah. off of that like story. You, you know, the guy got around. So. Oh my god, so we're talking about Craig. Alright, so um so they did their thing. I, I mean we could do a whole podcast on my Craig memories, but um I found the Craig in pieces split CD this weekend. I was cleaning up all my CDs. Alright, so uh but yeah, they did the whole uh Tom Ander sang for that band and he did screaming, uh like real, you know, shrieky kind of screaming, which wasn't the most popular style back then in in the late nineties. Uh, kind of like you know, like like Carly Como would do or something, and then yeah, he would sing clean in that emo voice and go back and forth, and it was before that shit caught on and became this. It was before Atreyu was on MTV two and whatever else eight years later. Like like dude, yeah, Tom, like they were on the underground playing the VFW hall floor of that style, and I've always said that, and never on the show. I'm so glad somebody else brought it up, dude. That's awesome. <laughs> so sick. Yeah, they got it. I think Thomas Thomas talked about getting a lot. I don't know if Craig is on Bandcamp, but he's talking about bringing about because he's got so many classic bands. Um, uh, maybe tomorrow, Strong Point, uh, Craig. It goes on and on and on. And those guys, I mean, we're we're planning on having Tom on the show coming up in the next like few, um, month or two. Uh, but I don't want to give away all the all the secrets. But um, we got to go over Craig because they went on tour. I worked with him at a landscaping job <laughs> yeah. the, all, the whole really summer in. before that, and the tour was crazy. But we'll talk about it. Tom's a good dude. Craig was definitely on the ground floor of that stuff. But subterfuge. Interesting. Um, yeah, dude. Wow. I mean, that's a tangent I want to go on, man. But we got you on here. We got to give. We, we still got to get to Extinction AD, bro. Yo, shout out to all the Craigs listening to the podcast. Yeah. So, <laughs> Patreon.com <laughs> slash have uh, uh, Yeah. All right. Okay. So yeah, just get them uh, in. I, uh, all right. Because now I'm getting all the Craigs. Crazy weird well, stories that I allegedly might not be able to tell about Craig members, but so uh, subterfuge is playing shows. You, like you said, you finally kind of broke through and you're doing your own thing. That that whole scene is popping that we do want to address on the podcast going forward in future episodes as well. We'll try to look up some of those bands. Come back, but let's talk about it. We we know that subterfuge. Um, uh, well, you said it. What, what was it about 2003? Uh, you played until. Yeah, we stopped playing in 2003 because we were at that crossroads of, hey, we need to go on tour and really do this for real instead of doing one tour a year or something. Or let's stop and figure out who wants to do music and who doesn't want to do music anymore. Mm. So the band kind of split over that uh, because Ed and Chris wanted to be responsible, smart adults, and myself and Johnny wanted to be idiots playing guitars forever. (laughs) So... You know, we stopped the band on our own terms, no pun intended, name of our first full length, and decided to start a new band with uh, Johnny and myself, of which we did. It was short-lived, and that eventually led into This Is Hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, and, um, you know, just side note, that's something that I, I talked about, and uh, it's just something that younger people, 
who haven't started a band, when you when you are starting a band or a project, you want you might want to think about that sort of thing, and you might want to have communication with your band members about that sort of thing, because that sounds like you guys parted amicably because you had a, like a, an adult discussion about where you were going with things, right? Oh yeah, yeah. There was never any ill will, and there was never any even pressuring. I don't know if I'm like rose-colored glasses in it, but I don't think so. There was never any ill will. It was, uh, hey, you know, you gotta make adult decisions sometimes. I mean, I mean, everybody else does. I've never done that once in my life. (laughs) But, I mean, uh, Chris and Ed went on to have families and Mm -hmm. have jobs and they're very secure and they have great lives. And Johnny as well and myself as well. But we were just on different paths uh, lifestyle-wise, not even yeah. like friendship-wise, no one's friendship ever wavered, which was so cool. You know, we played for eight years. You know, we gave it, mm-hmm. we gave it our all and took it as far as we could take it. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, I knew essentially from dancing in front of the TV, mocking Def or imitating Def Leppard, I wanted to be in a band and go on tour. Yeah. So that was yeah. uh, that was the next the next step at that point also i was really excited to stop playing drums and get back to playing guitar for oh time. yeah that's okay yeah that's that's a good point yeah and all i was getting at with that is that communication is is key because i know some bands where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing they just meet up and they and they play a show and that can get ugly sometimes so you got to communicate about that sort of thing that's very important um and that's just you know directed at like uh younger listeners people forming bands things things of that nature it's experience to hand down um, and so you mentioned uh, this is hell. Uh, this this is hell. You want to get into just like the forming of that band and how that gets off the ground because it does leave quite a legacy in the in the end. So that was John and myself were doing a band called Thieves and Assassins at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the backup plan was still playing and they were touring like crazy. And there was a band called Scraps and Heart Attacks that was also playing and they were touring like crazy. But every band of the three that I just mentioned had dudes that were fully in and some dudes that were kind of not fully in. So the idea came around of, hey, why don't we grab all the movers and shakers from each one of the bands and form one fucking juggernaut of a hardcore band? Mm. So the idea came up. I was like, hey, I'm, I'm all for that. You know, I'll play in as many bands as possible at once, especially back then. I think at one point in the mid-2000s, I was playing in five bands at once. <laughs> Jeez. Um, so This Is Hell started just as like a bit of a side project to the other three bands. And we wrote four songs really quick and recorded a demo in Jeff, uh, Jeff T.U. from American Ice Ages and Backup Plans Basement. And I think we knew really quick when we were done with those four songs, like, yo, this is fucking has more legs than all our other bands. And also it was fun because it was, like I said, the movers and shakers of each band. So everybody was on that same page. So uh, we had that demo out. We played a first show accidentally because we all wound up at a show <laughs> together. It was like, oh, why don't we bother? Why don't we just get up there and play the four songs we know? And... Um, the other members of each one of our other bands were like so not psyched because I think they saw the writing on the wall too like hey you have the two guys that do all the work in this band one guy that does all the work in that band and one guy that does all the work in that band and they're in a band together like 
Our bands are fucked. <laughs> Shit. The fog Dude, machine started working. Yes. Say, what? Fuck those guys. <laughs> that's good. That one. It's all about the guys that are obsessed with the band. <laughs> Fuck everyone else. That's the elite. That's the elite. That's, yeah. what, that's, what, that's what happened with the elite. Just At sorry. that show... The band I was in at the time, the singer gave me an ultimatum saying, I just can't be in a band with you if you're going to be in two bands. I was like, dude, this is a fucking side project. We're about to go on tour with our band. What's the problem? He's like, I don't know, man. Like, I just know that that's going to take off. And you just hear that enough as well as while we were on tour with you know, that band at one point. Uh, the dude's like, oh, I'm going back to school. Like, this is my life. I need to do this. I'm like, you know what, motherfucker? I'm not doing this band anymore. I'm sorry, I quit. And as soon as I quit that band, I called the dudes in this hell. I was like, yo, I'm ready to do this full time. They're like, oh, finally, let's fucking go. Listen, and that man, was it. I can't be in a band with you if you're gonna do all the work in at least two bands, and I'm not gonna, I'm just not gonna do any work in any of the bands now, so I'm sorry. And go. you know what? Uh, the way I'm telling the story makes him sound shitty, and at the time I thought he was shitty, and it might have straight up been shitty. But in retrospect, I understand everybody like has oh. their insecurities oh. as oh, well. Of course, yes. As oh, well as everybody has to oh. do what's right for their life. Everybody so, live your life. That's, in that's... May, he wanted to do the band full time, and he was insecure that this is hell. The band that was about to play their first show in a fucking basement was going to take over. He had his insecurities, and by January, he was like, "Yo, I have to go back to school and be a real person." And dude, that's totally valid. No we disrespect doing... at all. So, and I'm glad life. that he did that because I was able to go full force with This Is Hell. And, yo, from late 2004 to mid-2013, we never came home from tour. Hmm. Heavy, man. Wow. Fucking crazy. That's, that's a loaded statement right there. That's a lot. That's th So... So take take me through that though, because you guys did, you had a, a significant recorded output. I mean, um, uh, you mentioned the demo. If I'm not mistaken, you had three full length albums in addition to a number of EPs that came out. So the band was obviously busy writing and recording. But like, take me through that touring schedule and how you guys kept that up. I mean, was there a booking agent? Was it all DIY? Like, what was up? The first year or so. Every single thing was DIY. The first tour This Is Hell did, I wasn't even on the tour because I was touring with the other band where the singer gave me an ultimatum. The first This Is Hell tour was two months solid DIY on a four-song CDR demo. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> I love it. That's, Insanity. That's, that's All balls. booked good. by Travis Riley, the microphone holder of This Is Hell. Just relentless internet type of um, social light and booking these shows making friends with bands um, just doing everything on the business side and I mean eventually we wound up with a booking agent but we got that booking agent through Travis eventually we wound up with management we got that management because of Travis um, the van that we had we kind of took the best van of the three bands that you know, weren't touring anymore. It's great. Mm -hmm. Once that van took a shit and we got a new van, we got that new van because of Travis. So, um, dude, he was relentless on the business side, knowing that everybody in the band was relentless on the music side and the commitment side. I mean, there's no other way to make it work. You know, it's like the, people forget that they, 
they want to play sick music and shit, but then they forget about all the business behind it. Like, I know my, I'm not a businessman. I can I, produce I, shit, I can make music, I can do podcasts, but I don't do that business shit. So I give a lot of credit to people who are in that mindset. Because, god damn, it's got to be hard. I, I know guys who um, think that it's just about writing a, like a good song that you, you and your bandmates think is good, and they like get frustrated. They're like, these, this, these fucking guys are signed, but we're not. And like, they don't even get their shit out. They're like, yeah, some, some people don't realize how much work it takes to get your name out there. They think it's like you said about when you were young, just getting into it, like, oh, we're a band and we're here. Why aren't people paying attention to us? Yep. You know what I mean? Like, it takes a lot more than that. So... Uh, you, you weren't there for the first tour, um, you leave that band, now you're with This Is Hell. I mean, to really tour like that and dedicate most of your life to touring, like you said you didn't come home. Now I assume there were days off where you could come back to Long Island or so like that, but like, I mean, did you guys maintain some sort of like residence during that point or? I believe all of us were still living with parents during the beginning mm -hmm. of This Is Hell, which, um... You know, it's kind of embarrassing and dumb as hell in some ways. Like, hey, what are you doing? Like, oh, well, you know, I'm 24, I'm 25, I'm 26, I'm living with my parents. But on the other hand, or, you know, some of them with their parents, me with my mom. But on the other hand, it's like, well, I'm home for three months out of the year and not three months in a row. It's like, oh, I'm home for two weeks here, you know, three weeks here, five weeks here, whatever. But for the most part, I'm on tour all the time. And as anybody... I hope knows playing in a hardcore band, you're making exactly negative $75 a day. So yeah, it, it took a long time of relentless touring and writing and recording and everything to start seeing some money back from this is hell. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is long Island. Some people live with their parents, uh, and, until they're the parents, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <man. laughs> I mean, sometimes, you know, I pay. You it's know, definitely I, more normal in uh, in music too. I can't afford twelve hundred dollars for a studio apartment, man, and and go on tour and be in a death metal band. But so, especially when you calculate it out as. 70 negative 75 a day <laughs> never, never, when, I've when never you're did that young math, when you're touring off a four song cdr depressing. it probably is man like that's <laughs> you gotta put in that that groundwork so but i do know i you know i was watching i was on youtube i was watching some of your guys videos and and stuff like that there was one that was shot across europe right you guys ended up getting out there and and, and going to europe right yeah yeah like i said on the other hand of like i saying living with family members into our mid to late 20s the most gratifying thing in the world was just being able to go out and play shows all the time mm -hmm. and kind of live the life. But on top of that, coming home from that and being like, all right, now I have enough money to go and get my own place. Um, so, I mean, that's gratifying in itself. But like you said, going to Europe, we went to Europe the first time in the spring of 2005. At that point, our demo is now on 7-inch. But we did a full month in... Um, in Europe, when there were still borders at almost every country, um, there was no international cell phone plan then. Mm, mm. Uh, almost every country had their own um, money. It wasn't uh, their own currency. Not every country was on the euro right. yet. Mm -hmm. 
That's so, like the tape trading through Europe. Well, it's the younger yeah, days of the, the New World, world you're, Order. You're, you're, like the, the, the gears in my mind right now are like, I got to ask some of these old guys that we get who are touring in the 80s about. I never thought of any of those things you just mentioned. And it could have only been even more difficult in like the 80s and early 90s. I mean, you're oh, talking dude, about totally crazy. But but take us through that because I, I, you know, I, me personally, I've actually never left the United States. Um, not out of Allegedly. like not wanting to. I kind of, I you know, we didn't go on trips as growing up, and actually this year kind of screwed up my first kind of international trips because of the you know the COVID and all that sort of thing. But um, take me through that, man, because I'm very curious about all those things you just mentioned. The going across the all the different borders that had to be hell because just just traveling in the United States to make a show on a, on a U.S. tour is crazy without a border check like every day. Yeah, yeah, and it was crazy, and I'm glad that we were able to get in at that time because the next time we went to Europe was uh, just about a year later. It was totally, totally different. There was hardly any borders anymore. Everybody was on the Euro, so it was kind of cool to get the last, um, I guess, the last remnants of 80s European hardcore touring. But um, the first couple of days of being in Europe the first time were miserable. It was actually the first time I was ever even on a plane was the fucking flight to Germany for the first show. Wow. But um, like I said, the first couple of days were miserable because we were exhausted. And um, going to Europe for the first time is like culture shock at that point. Like the food is different. You know, you, we're not driving ourselves, so we can't just stop at a gas station and get uh, water and a protein bar whenever we want. Um, but a couple of days in, you kind of settle in. And then it turns into like, oh, well, passports, border. We wake everybody up. You got to give your passport. Sometimes you got to get out at the border. Um, you kind of enjoy it because you're on this like crazy fucking fantasy ride. You're in like a, you know, it's like in Star Trek when they go to a different planet. Like, oh, well, what's in store today? Oh, these people have different ridges on their face. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you're not allowed to walk on the grass. Um, it was like, all right, cool. Well, now I'm in Italy. Uh, and it was crazy. Like I said, we were there for a full month. We played um, through all of uh, Scandinavia, all of mainland Europe. We went to fucking Poland and Italy. Like We did a dense European tour. And like I said, there was um, the cell phone from country to country there. Our driver was German. Um, I think we were in Poland, one of the shows. We couldn't find the, find the venue. Um we couldn't call anyone. We just wound up missing the show. Like, oh, well, I guess we'll just find some place to park and go to bed instead of playing the show tonight. Wow. Like, it was like the fucking Wild West. How was the reception over there, too? Because, like, I mean, I'm sure, you know, th- like, you know, Europe's pretty on point with, uh, with with trends and music and whatnot. But, you know, you guys are bringing something a little bit different there, obviously. So, so yeah, how was, how was it received? The bands you're playing with, like, what kind of bills were you throwing on? It was a bit hit or miss. Um, sometimes we would play a show in some type of downstairs dungeon with like a crazy, what should be a crazy metal band, but is like the worst metal band in the world that has like a double kick kit, but every drum is like from a different drum set. And uh, <laughs> like, oh, well, the bass player didn't show up. Uh, it might be that one day. And then the next day, we're playing to 200 kids with Modern Life is War. And it's, like, in a beautiful venue, and we have a full rider backstage. So it was, dude, you never knew what to expect. 
It was the fucking Forrest Gump of hardcore Tory. Grab bag, <laughs> grab bag shit. <laughs> Box of chocolates, man. All right. Uh, um, wow. And, and and also and so you you brought to my mind too. I'd never thought of that money. So at each so you're 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 trying to sell like maybe shirts or whatever merch you had, the seven inch, I guess. And I mean, so are you like trying to? Um, uh, what are they like? Transfer money into the diff- different currencies, each country, every, so you can border? buy gas. Like, how does that work? What we're essentially trying to do at that point is get whoever's buying the first shirt to give us like as many like bills or different types of what, fucking coins or whatever the fuck is possible, so we can make change later on. Oh, every day you got to make change in a different currency. What yep. the fuck? This is horrible. Okay. <laughs> then at the end of the tour, you just go to the um, that fucking exchange place yeah. in the, uh, the airport. airport. Yeah. I assume those still exist. But it was like, people were saying, oh, well, so you want to exchange your German currency uh, in mainland, but you want to exchange your Polish currency in America. And, dude, you think that's difficult? Trying to price our T-shirts every day? It's like one day uh, our T-shirt is uh, 15 euros. The next day, it's 42,000 googly bots or something <laughs> oh man wow oh man that must have been hard i would I, I don't know if i could hang with that man that oh. that, that sounds tedious bless the people in google's menistan oh bless, bless, bless the people that toured before all you know everything got simplified that's fun that's why math is fun mm-hmm. but dude mm-hmm. the adventure of it all oh yeah was was amazing and it wasn't like oh like i said aside from the first couple of days where we were like yo this sucks what the fuck are we doing you know <laughs> yeah, there's 10 no days ihops in, anywhere yeah 20 days in we're like yo we're like doing it and by doing it it's like oh we sh- we drove eight hours to play a show to like 20 kids in italy it's like oh uh, yeah, yeah we're fucking doing it that's the sickest <laughs> but awesome. i mean yo that was the first i never European did that tour. i never did that man he we did went, it we went to uh, Europe with This Is Hell uh, 14 times over the course Damn. of the career. Damn. Wow. All right. That's so, what's up, man. That's, so that's it became so like re- like an old hat to you guys to just go back and forth. What's yeah, your... it was at least once a year. And I think uh, 2012, we went to Europe three times in one year. Sometimes yeah. it was like we were in and out for like two or three shows, mm-hmm. or like a festival and, and a mm. like a just one other show. But, um, you know, if... if if someone's footing the bill and paying for the airplane, shit, man, I'll fucking play my guitar anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are some of the uh, bigger festivals you've played and uh, those experiences like? Did you do you find those a little jarring? Like, you know, you know you- what? It's it's always like the sickest shit. Sometimes, you know, it's funny because <laughs> sometimes I'm talking to my girlfriend, Alyssa, about this stuff and she doesn't come from hardcore and metal and sometimes like. I don't want to say what I'm saying. What I'm you did saying a normal like, person. That's good yeah, to hear. <laughs> yeah, it's not like I'm speaking a different language, but um, by any means. But sometimes I don't realize how cool some of the shit that we did was, and sometimes I do. I did realize how cool it was while we were doing it, but in retrospect, I'm like, oh my god, that's fucking bonkers. So we played um, Reading and Leeds Fest in 2010 with fucking Guns and Roses. Hmm. Now, it wasn't a show. It's a festival, and we didn't even play on the same stage that they played on. Yeah, but yeah. it doesn't matter. If you look at the poster or the JPEG, mm-hmm. it says Guns N' Roses, blah, 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 blah. This is hell. 
And two years yeah. later, writing in Leeds Fest again, it says, Foo Fighters, blah, 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 blah. This is hell. And you look at the, uh, we played Soundwave Festival in Australia in 2010 and 2013. And you look at the 2010, it says, um, Faith No More, and I should understand who the other headlining bands are, or remember, I don't I don't recall. Um, but I mean, Faith No More and uh, Anthrax and uh, This Is Hell. And then you fast forward to 2013. And dude, August 19th, 2012, which is my birthday, I get a text from Travis like, uh, hey, what are you doing next February? I was like, what the fuck? He's like, all right, we got Soundwave again. I was like, all right, cool. He's like, okay, you want to know who's headlining? I was like, fucking yes. He's like, fucking Metallica. Wow. So I was like, all right, cool. Happy birthday. You're about to go on tour in Australia. In Australia, they treat every band way better than they're supposed to. Like, dude, we suck. We're idiots. And we get treated just as good as, like, fucking Anthrax and Slayer over there. It's just, like, it, it's insane. But, you know, 2013, we did Soundwave Festival with Anthrax, Metallica, Slayer. It's just fucking bonkers shit. And the older I get, the more cognizant I am of, like, uh, how big everything is and how fortunate I am to be a part of it. Um and I mean, it doesn't matter how many records we did or didn't sell or if anyone gives a shit about my band, uh, past, present, or future. I know I could say that I played or shared the bill in some way, shape, or form five times in my life for the band that is responsible for me caring about music in the way that I care about music. Mm-hmm. Cheers That's, for that. that yeah, cheers. Yeah. That's great, man. And, and you're right, man. You know, you look back sometimes... Uh, it, it's. I can't say that. I can't say any of those lofty names you just mentioned. But one artificial brain, by way of festival appearance on a different stage, but on the same flyer. I know what you mean. We did open up one time for De La Soul, another Long Island group. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whose so sing- hit single and music video, me myself and I, was like a, very important to me as a child. That's awesome. But um, uh, but anyway, yeah, getting back, man, that's great. So I, I think I have one Ultra Guys poster hanging up in the in in the studio over here where uh, we shared the bill with This Is Hell. I think that's fun. The, yes. Wow, yeah, this so is that's true. Full circle. The me- uh, Metal Suck Fest. <laughs> he could say that about oh, the shit, yeah. <laughs> Municipal waste. Yep. Fuck it. Uh, the red cord. God yeah. damn. That was a fun show. Uh, three. Cynic. That band, Three. Yeah. I think they're from Australia as well. They're a, uh, a Pantera VHS tribute band. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I wish v- VHS and VH1 and, and like my old my whole and Van Halen like my whole life is just VH lately. VH. <laughs> but um, uh, so so you guys got out there. I mean, you told you we started this part of the conversation with you saying that you never came home, but like you really, I mean, you just went out there. Besides Europe now and mainland United States, you go. I mean, you ever go to Hawaii? You ever go to Alaska? You ever play any place that like doesn't come up a lot on tour schedules? Hawaii. And Wyoming are the only two. No, um, Alaska and Wyoming are the only two states that we've never played. So you did do Hawaii. We did Hawaii. So I believe, um, fuck, I don't remember what year it was now. But we did a tour that we were able to legitimately say, oh, we're going on a world tour. Because we started in New York. We flew to California, played some shows in California. Flew to Hawaii, played in Hawaii, flew to Australia, did a full Australia tour did uh, New Zealand and then from there we went to Southeast Asia we were supposed to do a whole tour then 
fly to Texas to do a festival and then fly back home. Unfortunately, my passport was full, so they kicked us out of Southeast Asia. Wow. Oh, my God. We flew to fucking Singapore. They're like, you don't have room in your passport. I was like, cover something. They're like, no. I was like, all right, what do you want me to do? They're like, go sucks. home. And I said, you got to be kidding. Too many countries. That sucks, man. Yeah, you maxed out on a world tour, man. You did it. You really did it, man. That's, That's but But, wild. I mean, it's we've, wild. you know, we've heard about touring in Australia. We've heard about Europe. And, um, uh, you know, shout out to all of our listeners in New Zealand and all that. But... I've always been fascinated with the idea of Hawaii because I've kind of Googled here and there. I've, you know, they have a fest here. They have like more, maybe more of a punk hardcore scene than a metal scene from what I gather. You know, if we have listeners that know more, please chime in too. But like, you've been there, you've played a show there. What's it like flying down to Hawaii? What was the venue like? What were the, were there local bands and what was the local scene like? Dude, the whole thing was surreal, but it was so cool. We played a venue called Hawaiian Brian's. No, <laughs> that's what they used to call. Oh no, Ryan Scamenti, the singer of Disfigured. They used to call him Hawaiian Ryan because he wore Hawaiian shirt. I'm sorry. Go go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> Shout out to Flying Brian as okay. well. Yeah. So Hawaiian Brian's <laughs> in Hawaii, man. Take me there. It's like, if I remember correctly, it's like a 500 cap venue that's also an arcade, but that's the only venue of that size. There's that venue, and then there's the huge arena. So. A couple, of months, <laughs> a couple of months prior, Hatebreed was in Hawaii, and they played Hawaiian Bryans. Um, also, No Effects was just there, but they're too big for Hawaiian Bryans, so the next step up, they played the fucking huge, like, basketball arena or hockey arena or whatever. So um, the scene there, they have a bunch of, like, mainland imports. And then, of course, there's locals. We played with a local uh, thrash metal band who had a mainland singer. Um, He had, you know, uh, I guess it's not emigrated because it's still America, but he had moved from, you know, mainland uh, United States to Hawaii and he'd been there for years. Um, But I mean, it was, there wasn't really much difference show-wise. You know, if anything, it was kids more psyched to see a live show because they're not spoiled like um, California and New York. And as of right now, well, not now, but, let's say a year past all of America at this point is spoiled there's like an abundance of bands you can go to the Midwest and see a hardcore and a metal show at two different venues on a fucking Thursday yeah I mean up up until everything got shut down you're right about that and that's just one of the things I wondered about um, you know with Hawaii you know the shows like that I've always wanted to maybe get out there with one of my bands if possible who knows I mean we've done I mean we've had plenty of conversations about you know like India and and all these yeah, like obs- like yeah, you know yeah. you know lot, obscure lot places. places around the world and they just they just have scenes like there's just people you know yeah yeah i mean metal is uh, metal just gets out there man it's invasive but um now and and perfect segue talking about metal we know that this is hell um the, you know at, at, in 2013 do you part ways with the band or does everyone kind of call it a day it's it's been enough you've been to four, Europe 14 times or or like like what's what's the deal it was pretty, uh, it would have been building up for a little while. I think we were all kind of burnt out on it is the yeah. best way of putting it. I can uh, imagine. You lasted pretty long on that schedule. You know, and we put out, like I said, four full-length albums. Mm-hmm. Like, we put out an EP between every single album. We had so much material, and we were always changing our style. And um, probably business-wise, not the smartest move. 
but I mean, like I said at the beginning, I've never made a smart decision in my life. <laughs> and so we were changing sounds or styles at least a little bit each album, and we were touring relentlessly, probably too much. So, I mean, it just it stopped being as fun as it should be. Um, because, you know, if you play uh, Columbia, South Carolina three times a year, you know, people can miss you twice, and it's not a big deal. And then it's like, well, last time we played here, there was 200 kids. Then we played here, it was like 100 kids. And it's like, well, those 100 kids are still psyched. It's like, oh, you know, we're falling off. You know, it's like fucking Poison trying to play a show in 1991. Like, hey, man, people are over it. It's like, well, is it that or is it that we're playing too much? Or is it both? You know, and it's that kind of seeps into your brain a little bit. And it kind of makes it not as much fun. And as we're getting more and more metal and the stuff that I was writing was kind of even pushing past what This Is Hell was kind of capable of, it was just to the point where, like, hey, I think I want to do something different. And same thing, like, with Subterfuge. There was never any uh, ill will. So much so that Travis, who was the frontman of This Is Hell, who was not in Extinction AD, was, was and continues to be our biggest supporter. Um, and even at that point when we started Extinction AD, it was like, all right, we're going to, I'd written at that point already 15 or 25 songs. And I wrote the vocals and demoed all the vocals. And I knew exactly what I wanted. It was like, all right, we got to try out some singers. Um, and nothing was working. And Travis was like, dude, why don't you just sing? I said, I can't play this shit and sing at the same time. I can barely play this shit as it is, and I definitely can't sing. He's like, yo, you're fucking fine. Go to practice. Give it a shot. And if it sucks, then don't fucking do it. Like, sack up. I said, all right, fine. So we went to practice with, like, just music, the, you know, the fucking musical members of the band. I said, hey, I'm going to sing. And I sang. And right away I was like, oh, okay, here we are. There's the band. I'm the singer now, too. <laughs> um, and every, everybody was like, dude, totally, that's sick. And I was like, oh, I didn't think I could do this. And it was kind of those things where, like, you don't think you could do something until you just fucking do it. You know, two years prior, I wasn't able to, I wasn't good enough at guitar to play in the Extinction AD stuff until I just wrote that stuff and played it. So at that point, it was like, well, if I could play this on guitar and I could demo these vocals, I could do it at the same time. And if something's hard, uh, try harder until you could fucking do it. It's like, oh, all right. So I did it. That's it. I just had to try harder. I, I You know, it's it sounds kind of like you're writing material for Extinction AD before you really knew that the band was was a band or before you like you started. Is it, is it safe to say that you formed Extinction AD? Oh, yeah, totally. I was... Dude, I'm writing at that point, like too much I'm always like an album and a half ahead so I had started writing what became Extinction AD material um, probably the beginning of 2012 and the band doesn't officially you know form until like June of 2013 okay alright so and I imagine you also like, like you kind of have like a pretty good idea of like uh, you know, just like lyrically, what you want to do with the band, what kind of like where you want to sit in the scene. That's all. Like you have, you have time to flesh it out. You know, before you really uh, record. Like I think, what was it? Self-titled demo, 2013 was the first release. Yeah, just a two-song demo that we recorded with uh, Joe Sincata. 
Yeah, shout, shout to Joe. I've, yeah, I, I, I've, I rec- my, my other band, Afterbirth, we recorded an album with Joe, man. Joe's a good guy, man. Yeah. Watching three baseball games and <laughs> and, and, and mixing down your record. He's, he's like he's like Dr. Octopus, man. He's just doing yeah. all this stuff, but it works. It works. It's good. I love Joe, man. He's a good guy. Um, we got to get him on the show, too, man. Uh, so now with Extinction huh? AD... Um, we talked before about 2015's Faith Killer. That's your first full-length album, right? Yeah, yeah. We had recorded a 7-inch called Plague Prophecy mm-hmm. and released that in 2014, the first full-length Faith Killer 2015. Yeah, yeah. Plague Prophecy. I, and, and these days, it's like, all right, man, what'd you guys know? You know, but it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's sad to say, but sometimes, you know, you can... Um, you should have hit us up last year, man. You should just give it the heads up. Yeah, it's like self-fulfilling prophecy or something. I don't know. Lyrically, we've been there since the beginning with this band. You know, it's uh, sometimes it like hits me as if I didn't write these lyrics when I, if I listen to an old thing or even if I listen to demos for the new record that we're doing now. I was like, yo, whoever wrote this shit is some type of prophet. And I'm like, oh, it's me. And I'm not even a fucking prophet. I'm just... I kind of pay attention to what's going on in the world yeah, and I like to yeah. use the platform of being in a band to not just always oh like this chick broke my heart and uh, this friend stabbed me in the back and I want to mm-hmm. you know smash him which both of those things are great things to write about but with this band I just didn't want to write about that shit anymore I wanted to write about more socially conscious things and I don't even want to say political because I'm not writing about fucking politics I'm writing about what's going on mm-hmm. in society and, dude, I could read lyrics that I wrote in 2013 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, all the way up to lyrics that I wrote for this record that we're recording now, and be like, yo, why is what I wrote about years ago actually coming to fruition? And you know, like I said, it's not like I was yeah. writing fantasy, but it's fucked up. No, I, I know what you're saying, man. And, you, you know, it's, it's, it's like if you just pay attention, and, you, and especially if you can study history, a little bit too, you know. It's 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 scary sometimes. And you know, we talked before about John Berg and Contra. Just quickly, I I, I purchased the Contra album. Um, I, I wish I wish I could remember the name. What was it? it was something like Boys Club or something? But whatever it was, um, the Contra full length album that came out uh, uh, in the late '90s. I purchased it on vinyl from some place I saw online, and I told John I was like I reread the lyric sheet and the liner notes and everything you know and I was like that's an album from the late 90s and like it could have been from yesterday the social political commentary yep. and the lyrics and all that sort of stuff and I was like it's scary man it's just just a conversation I had just recently with him man and and it's kind of like speaks to what you're talking about um and also you know I guess it kind of like fits in here too we should mention that your most recent release is 2020s it's about time that we had a change um uh, I guess that's a that's a digital release on on Bandcamp. Um, you want to talk about that? It's it's a co- like a cover EP that sort of thing. Yeah. So, just as the pandemic hit, we had started recording our new full length, but we had recorded the drums, and then it was like, hey, everything's shut down, can't go to the studio, and on top of that, hey, no one knows what the fuck is going on in the music business, so funds frozen. We can't finish the record. So we're just sitting at home, sitting at home, sitting at home. I do as much as I can. I recorded all the guitars and bass at my house uh, just to be ready to be plugged in with the rest of uh, the, the drums and we'll finish the vocals at some point. But the idea came up and said, hey, we should just record something remotely just to, you know, have some fun because we can't get together and practice. Um, 
Stay productive, and, yeah. Yeah, stay productive, you know. And also, I've always wanted, like I said earlier, uh, early 80s American hardcore punk is like my favorite era of music. I've always wanted to do like a bit of an homage, kind of like what Slayer did in 1996 with Undisputed Attitude. Mm -hmm. But I think Slayer fucked up in a lot of ways on that record. <laughs> and I don't like I'm not one of the ones that thinks conceptually that it was wrong. I think that it's amazing. And that record introduced me to some bands that I never heard of before. You know, I knew Minor Threat, but I never heard of Verbal Abuse at that mm -hmm. point. You know, um, I had heard The Stooges, but I had never heard of Dr. No. Um, so I love, of course, I, I love metal because I'm in a fucking metal band. So I thought, especially under uh, what's going on in the world, taking some of those songs and doing them our style, lyrically, we're just right on the ball with those, mm -hmm. those bands. And the spirit of those songs it's exactly the spirit of Extinction AD even if we're a metal band those bands are just uh, hardcore and punk bands so I said hey let's do this I'll pick out five songs uh, it'll be so easy because they're all minute long songs everybody learn your shit we'll record the stuff and we'll just release it digitally um, it'll be a fun project and maybe we can make up some of the lost funds because we were on a tour we played one show March 13th mm. or March 12th and they said hey when this show's over go home tours canceled like dude we just bought new merch we just uh, fixed a van I sold my car to pay for van repairs to go on this tour and no. it's like up, oh, go home so like maybe we could you know make a five song EP sell them for five bucks and you know make a couple of bucks so we from concept to release it was about three weeks we recorded a Dead Kennedy song, a DRI song, TSOL, Adolescence, and DC's Youth Brigade. Put it out October 30th. Nice and quick and simple. Yeah, and uh, and you mentioned your Slayer's Undisputed Attitude. Uh, you talked before about Metallica and how they were. I thought about Metallica's Garage Days. Um, you know that 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 whole thing, man. It's mm -hmm. just the idea of a, um, like more of a, a metal band doing those old school kind of punk hardcore songs, man. And it, and you're right, it does fit uh, perfectly with Extinction AD's aesthetic and what you guys have put out. 2018's Decimation Treaty. We should also mention is the other full length uh, album, and both of those came out on Good Fight Records, right? Yeah, Good Fight Music. They also did our first 7-inch, Plague Prophecy. Okay, you want to talk about um, your relationship with them and working with them a little bit? You know, that was a really easy uh, merger. You know, when we first started the band, we took things, I think, almost a little too slow. We were a little too uh, pick-and-choose what we want to do to start off because we wanted to be a bit more strategic than This Is Hell had been uh, at certain points. We are like, hey, let's just go and do be out all the time. Let's just fucking do everything. Um, so it took us a while to even start shopping around to labels. And at that point, we were around for almost a year and hadn't really done much aside from a couple of, you know, local shows and um, Northeast shows. But Good Fight Music is uh, run by this guy, Rick, and another guy, Carl, who used to do Ferret Records. Mm -hmm. Um but he was doing Good Fight Now, and they were both like, hey, we're totally into this. Like, all right. Um, they're like, let's do a 7-inch and see how it goes. So we did that 7-inch, and everything was cool. They're like, oh, you want to do full length? It's like, shit, let's do a full length. And then just at that point, 
we just assumed we were going to do our second full length with them. So we did that also. No, there was never any contract signing. To be honest, it wasn't even like a handshake deal because I don't think that um, at the point that we had made the deal and the first 7-inch came out, I don't think that we had even seen each other in person uh, until after the 7-inch had come out. We had seen each other in person like way before. You know, like we knew uh, Carl prior um, from the This Is Hell days. But um, I, I mean, that's that's basically it. You know, they're a smaller label that does hardcore and metalcore and metal. But, you know, we're a smaller band also. And hopefully we could, you know, kind of ascend to become a bigger thing. And they could ascend to become a bigger thing. And maybe we could help each other out in that way. Because, I mean, they help us out as much as they can as it is. Dude, running a record label is hard. <laughs> sure. Especially, you know... I ran a shitty label in the early 2000s just for fun. And, you know, that was dumb as hell, man. Like, <laughs> you know, like, hey, I, I don't lose enough money doing bands all the time. Oh, you know what I'll do? I'll put out another band's record, too. Like, what are you doing? Yeah, I just it's... cut up my debit cards and, you know, go to the ATM and, hey, can I withdraw $500? And they're like, well, you can only withdraw four. Like, all right, give me four. And immediately take that and just fucking burn it. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, yeah. Those, those guys are cool, and um, you know they do all they can for us, and we do all we can for us also. Like We did this covers EP alone, and they're still pushing it, even though they don't have anything to do with it, just because like we're one of their bands. Yeah, and you know you mentioned that they, they push a lot of metalcore and hardcore, and, and, and um, uh, the background uh, coming uh, from Ferret Records too, which is um, you know obviously a whole scene unto itself and a whole movement unto itself. And what I'm getting at is the crossover element there between metal and hardcore, because Extinction AD is is more of a metal band, um, but I would say you know in the tradition of like of like that crossover appeal that was big in the late '80s into the '90s. I feel like there's a whole new wave of that. You know, we've seen bands like um, uh, like. Uh, Power trip, Power trip. Uh, you know, rest in peace to, to, to Riley. Obviously, we mentioned municipal waste before, and it's a whole thing now. Um, and uh, I know you guys recently toured with Obituary. Uh, what was it within the last two years? Right, you did a big tour with Obituary. Yeah, last December. Yeah, yeah. Shout uh, shout to Terry Butler, a, a past guest of the show. And um, may, could you just like maybe speak to that a little bit about nowadays? I feel like I see the younger kids, the kids that are in their teens and 20s now in the hardcore scene showing a lot more appreciation for old school death metal and bands mm -hmm. like Obituary and for thrash metal like what Extinction AD does. Do you see that out on the road and at shows? I do and I don't. Mm -hmm. um, I think from the hardcore side, there is almost like a specific set of bands that aren't hardcore but are hardcore approved. Now, even if a band is very similar, say like um, Obituary and um, I don't say, let's just say, for instance, Obituary and Deicide. Yeah. Uh, Obituary is getting all of this love in hardcore, but Deicide's not getting that. Yeah. Um, a band like Municipal Waste is getting all this love in hardcore, but to be honest, Extinction AD does absolutely does not get that love in hardcore but you know I come from metal and I come from punk but I spent so long involved in hardcore and um, 
I think in the very beginning of Extinction AD, I valued what hardcore was and my involvement in it so much that I didn't want to, like, quote-unquote, use hardcore to propel Extinction AD, knowing that we wanted to go the full metal route. Because, I mean, I know how hardcore guys are. Like, oh, you're our band, and the second you go do something outside <laughs> of that, yeah. like, the fuck them sellouts, like, sellouts. I haven't made a dollar my whole life. <laughs> like a hardcore kid finds like a like a, an eighty nine obituary release, and they're just like, "What the fuck is what metal shit is this? This isn't <laughs> hardcore." <laughs> well, but no, you're I, going backwards, bud. No, but right. on the so, other hand, I think like over the past couple of years, and I, I really mean couple, I mean like 2018, 2019, 2020, those walls are coming down, and I think that that's so great. Because, dude, metal, hardcore, punk, if it's done the right way, it's different, but it's all the fucking same thing, man. We're all on the same goddamn team. Like, even, like, musically, that shit is interchangeable as fuck. Like, you think Motorhead gives a fuck if, like, somebody's coming to their show wearing a Metallica shirt or an Exploited shirt or a Sick of It All shirt? No. Uh... Mm. Do you think anyone obituary gives a shit about that? No. Do you think anybody Extinction AD gives a shit about that? I'll tell you how I give a shit about somebody showing up to our show in an exploited shirt or an incendiary shirt or uh, an obituary shirt. It's the fucking coolest thing in the goddamn world. Because, like I said, man, we just did five cover. We covered a goddamn Dead Kennedy song. Someone's going to listen to Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables. And then listen to Decimation Treaty and being like, uh, these are totally different worlds. This is a Slayer ripoff, and this sounds like uh, Doink the Clown singing into a microphone. <laughs> it's like, hey, guess what? In my opinion, we're the same thing. Th- that, you know, fucking Doink the Clown singing into a microphone, you know, Jello Biafra, if there's no him, there is yeah. no Rick Jimenez singing into a microphone for Extinction AD. So... I want it to be this like all one thing. You know who's a big proponent of that? And I noticed this when Extinction AD was pretty young, you know, or early on in our career. The first time we actually played a hardcore show was with uh, King Nine and mm. Dan Seely, the singer. Um, not that I even thought that there was within the crowd, but he just said, Hey, shout out to Extinction AD for playing this show with a bunch of hardcore bands. Like, people think, and I think th- this is exactly what he says, people think there's some type of schism between hardcore and metal, and fuck all that. That doesn't exist. Like, we're all the same, hardcore and metal. They're, dude, there's plenty of room for everyone. We're all tuning our guitars to D and fucking chugging, you know? Sometimes we're playing fast with more notes, and sometimes we're, like, bouncing around a little bit more like a hip-hop beat. Who gives a fuck? Riffs, all, riffs are riffs, man. If it's dude, a good riff, riffs man. Riffs are riffs. And, like, the bands, we're all friends. Like, so, I, I like playing around with genre tagging when it's fun. Like, you know, hey, this is, like, emotional, passionate rap core. Like, oh, hey, boy. cool. We're about, to, we're fucking, about to get I'm into fucking, that. Yeah. yeah, I'm fucking around. But I'm like, oh, this is, like, uh, grindy, clean singing, new metal. Like, you want to mess around with labels like, all right, this is thrash, that's hardcore, this is crossover. I'm all for that when like I'm organizing my iTunes. That doesn't mean I don't want to see all that on one show. Yeah, 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 man. All right, so 
Uh, yeah, and, and and it's it's funny because you you know you talk about this this new EP with all the old school punk hardcore songs, and it's just I feel like nowadays um, there's there's so much less separation between the genres too. Just like you said, like like Motorhead was kind of like almost like the original crossover band. Is it punk? Is it metal? Who cares? And then you have like DRI, Long Island's own Crumb Suckers, and then like nowadays I feel like there's a full on melting of the genre. Like you you know. You could have Power Trip and Obituary play a show, and it's all, you know, well, that sort of thing. Um, and, it, and, it's, and it's funny to see where it's, like, going. I mean, unfortunately, obviously, we had this whole shutdown, and, and everything is, is at a standstill now. But it seemed like tour packages were just getting straight up mixed between old-school punk and hardcore bands and your old-school death metal bands. Like, I never thought I'd see the day where Entombed is a big influence on the modern hardcore scene. You know, yeah, but it, but yeah, it's it, crazy, it, it right? is. It's like it's like you see like uh, what's that bit Jesus piece? I hear yeah. their guitar tone, and it reminds me of like it's, old yeah, Swedish death metal. Yeah. And sh- it's it's crazy. But, but, man. And then the riffs are like the opposite. Yeah, but it's 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 far from. It's an interesting time to be in extreme music. Um, absolutely. And shout that, out to the Black Dahlia murder where Entombed could have been over here. Uh, <laughs> they all could have been playing. <laughs> allegedly, allegedly. <laughs> all right. uh, so. Uh, you know, we talked about Extinction AD, and that latest EP we talked about is it, it's about time that we had a change. It's on Bandcamp, but you did mention you were in the midst of recording a new album, and that got sidelined by the whole COVID uh, thing. Could like, could you speak to that? Is uh, you know, is it have you since recorded it? Are you waiting it out? What's going on? So as of right now, the drums are done. We recorded the drums at Westfall Studios. Shout out to Ray. Yeah, fuck yeah. Then once the pandemic hit. I said, fuck it, I'm going to use all this time. And I recorded the guitars and recorded the bass all on our own, which I wanted to do anyway because I didn't want to be rushed. But now that the you know the pandemic hit, all I was doing was going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I couldn't even go to the gym. So it was work and recording. So I went like full 1991 Metallica, and I spent two months recording the guitars mm-hmm. for this record. Um, wow. All right. So then we have the guitars and the bass done, and then we're just kind of – at a standstill and I was just waiting until we could go back into the studio until like I said we did this covers EP and I recorded those vocals just in my room with my little home setup and I was like yo I might just record the vocals for this record at home also yes um, because dude I like to take my time um, and I also I like to move fast while I'm recording so if I'm running the fucking uh, the machine, the computer, the Pro Tools. I could like, oh, I got to redo that line. Blah, 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 and I'm right there as opposed to, oh, wait, hey, uh, can you go back to that part when I say like, uh, you know, sit on it? Like, <laughs> no, 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 not that. You know, the, the first verse. Uh, I hate that shit. I hate having my momentum thrown off. Yeah. So, um, yeah. but dude, we've been writing this record since before we recorded Decimation Treaty. Um, okay. And we're always ahead like that. And it's, it's kind of crazy. Because then we released Decimation Treaty and we're doing like interviews and press and going on tour with that. And in my mind, Extinction AD sounds like the new record that we're recording. Mm. And in everybody else's mind, we sound like Decimation Treaty. Not that it's drastically different, but, you know, I I have a different point of view because it's my band. You know, it could be, hey, they sound exactly the same. But um, we spent so long writing this record and recording that we didn't jump ahead so far this time. Yeah. We wrote, I think, 20 songs and then chose the best 10 songs of those and like, hey, let's just focus on these songs and spent a long time writing lyrics, which was 
kind of a bad thing because the longer I take writing lyrics, the longer I'm in that like shitty headspace of just like laboring over like a specific topic of what's going on in the world at that time or at this time. And it like, I feel like it's so cliche and so corny, but it's also fucking true. And I'm not going to lie. It puts you in like a, a dark headspace. You know, where, like, I'm writing this one song about, um, for instance, uh, we have a song called 13, the 13th Amendment, and it's essentially the uh, incarceration problem we have in America. It, incarceration is big business, and I don't, well, it's not that I don't care, but I will debate with anybody. The system and the incarceration system is set up to be a business to, uh, 100% exploit black men in America. Now, if I spend three days, four days, two weeks writing the lyrics to that song, I'm in that headspace for 14 fucking days. And, I mean, I feel like it's important to talk about it, especially so much so that I'm writing a song about it, and I think it's important to be able to get on stage, especially in metal, where not everybody in metal thinks the way I think. In hardcore, I just kind of assume, oh, everybody is, you know, kind of of the progressive side. And everybody does, nobody questions racial inequality. Um, and then in metal, sometimes you go and play a show in South Carolina. And you're like, there's fucking Nazis here. What the fuck? So it might be controversial for me to go up on stage and say, like, we have an incarceration problem in this country. And it's based on exploiting black men. This song is called 13. I might not get a like, oh, fuck yeah, I'm going to mosh this out now. I might get like... Hey, get off the stage. Stop fucking talking. And I don't give a shit. I mean, hey, man, I'm not afraid of shit. I probably should be, but I'm not. But like I said, writing that song, it puts you in a negative headspace. Um, but it's all for a positive outlet. But it doesn't mean that I'm not <clears throat> shitty for two weeks. And dude, I did the same thing when the world in 2019 started reflecting Los Angeles in 1992. And I know LA 92 has been written about to death, but like, well, I read this and I read that and I watched this, you know, news clip and that, and I'm like, I'm learning shit about 1992 that I had no idea about when I was 12 and then even 13, 14, 15. Um, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to write about this and I think it's important and I enjoy the outcome and I enjoy being able to converse with people and get on stage. And I will talk about, Hey, this song is about this which I know isn't extremely popular in metal, but I, I will do it because I think that's important. That's part of me fucking going and playing live. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not, you know, fucking me up for a week while I'm writing that song. Huge tangent. I don't remember what the original <laughs> question was. Well, we know you spend your time writing uh, your lyrics and you get into some dark places like that. Um, yeah. Uh, well, no, we were just talking about writing the, um, the writing process and how you were kind of ahead of the game from the, from the last album. But yeah, um, and uh, I would just I would just add to that shout to our listeners in South Carolina, and you could find Nazis in Long Island. <laughs> oh, dude, uh, I, I would on, put on money yeah. on it that um, you're finding more Nazis yeah. on Long Island than anywhere else yeah. in America right now. But Maybe I, 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 I hear it, I know what you're saying. Shout to Long Island lead, leading I, in, I all, you, though, in all ways, but um. um Long Island, I mean, you could find a little bit of everything on Long Island, man. It's all mixed up out here. But 
Uh, so, and that that being said, um, you know, obviously you're very outspoken about, um, you know, your beliefs and like you said maybe not just politics but it's just kind of social commentary at this point um things that you see going on in the world and that speaks to your latest release uh as we said is that covers ep and obviously we're probably i i wouldn't be surprised if you veered into that territory you know more with um this this upcoming release like you just told us the the one songs um uh topic so is there? By the way, before we get off the topic of the of the upcoming album, is there? Is I, I assume there's not like a, a date or a projected uh, time. No, no. We were probably supposed to wait to announce the title, but um, I don't care. I well, mean, we announced the title. We'll show. bleep that shit out. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I announced it months ago on my own podcast. Anyway, so the record we actually labored over an album title. You know, we knew this time we didn't want to name it after one of the songs. Yeah. So it was like, what encompasses this whole thing? And we're naming the album National Disaster. Mm-hmm. All, All right. right. All right, man. Um, yeah, well, it's, it's kind of interesting, too, because just for the listeners, we usually post these these interviews, these episodes up about a week or two later after we record them. But, but just for we, the we, listeners, we, tomorrow is Election Day in yeah. the United States of America. This is, yeah. So this is this is kind of a timely interview, and it'll be interesting yeah, so, to listen back. Yeah, and, so and you're, we'll see what you're hearing our happy voices before the uh, Civil War. So yeah, you, 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 <laughs> may, you might not hear this episode. There might not be electricity in yeah, the United you know States. We're, we're today, trying to get I this read, out on ham radio uh, in the next uh, release. Yes. <laughs> I read something today that said the average lifespan of a specific civilization is 250 years. Oh, yeah. And yeah, that's just throughout history. This is new to me. And someone said, oh, well, if you do the math, 1776 was 244 years ago. Mm. So we're, we're on track. So we, got, a, the, so we got another six the, years. Well, no, no, if, hold on, hold on. Buckshot face of 20th anniversary also, show. It might happen. But also, oh. uh, 20, uh, 2030 <laughs> is the uh, 2000th uh, anniversary of uh, Jesus on the cross, right? So, uh, so there's going to be uh, a, few, a few years of uh, good times and weird times. And then terrible times, and then Jesus comes back, and then we have a thousand years of good times. And so, in the so year we're all, 2000, we're all the computers coming. are all going to crash. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Too. Chris Jericho warned us about that. Yeah, I remember that. So and- in 2020, I bought, and you, the listeners can't see this, but I bought a tiny dumpster, and I'm knocking on it right now. And For this good is, luck. This is what I'm holding. Yeah. To get me through this year, because I, I I might buy a huge dumpster and move into it by the end of yeah, the year. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to throw all of our garbage in this small little dumpster yeah. when we're done. Is, with uh, this. It's Chainsaw Charlie in there. Can I can I vote in that, can brother? I just, can I just? I'll feel better if I just put my vote in that dumpster. All right, we the, got the we first got, Ranger game I go to when when this is all said and done in MSG. I will I will be throwing Chainsaw Charlie out of this dumpster <laughs> um, in the place where he came. So go on, Tom. real quick. You mentioned this before. I don't want to forget about this. Your podcast. I want so to- I do two podcasts. About a little over a year ago, uh, me and my friend Ryan started the Stiff Shots podcast, which is strictly talking about wrestling. We usually pick one specific show from the week, and we do a bit of a deep dive on it. We you know, have a lot of laughs. Sometimes we have a guest on and bullshit, and it's a lot of fun. But once the pandemic hit, like I said, I was recording the record. It was taking up all my free time. Once I was done with the record, I was like, what the fuck am I going to do? Like, we're still on lockdown. Like, I haven't seen my band in forever. I said, you know what? I'm going to start another podcast as an excuse to just call my friends up on the phone and, and bullshit. 
Mm. And I was like, hey, you know what? I'll have a documented uh, history of my friendship with my friends at that time. Uh, and it's 2020, so I might as well put it on the internet and have it be, uh, <laughs> be a podcast. So I was trying to just, like I said, come up with an idea that was palatable enough, but a good excuse, just bullshit with my friends. And I was like, well, maybe I'll, every year, or not every year, but a couple of times throughout my life, leading up to WrestleMania, I'll watch all the WrestleManias. I was like, dude, I will do that, and every week I'll talk about a WrestleMania and, like, an album with a friend. And then um, John Moore, my best friend since 1985, is like, uh, do you think about doing it with movies? I was like, maybe I'll do every other week a movie and an album. He's like, dude, do it all in one show. I was like, all right. So I was like, oh, this is what I'll do. We'll go chronologically, starting from uh, WrestleMania 1, 1985. I'll have a guest. We watch the WrestleMania of the year. They pick any album in the world they want, any movie in the world they want from that year. We'll watch all three or watch the two things, listen to the album, and then we'll just bullshit about it for an hour. I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. So I did the first episode. I was like, yo, this is so much fun. So <laughs> that's how it started. Now I just I do it every single week. <clears throat> um, uh, this, uh, well, we're a little behind here, but... Um, just finished recording uh, WrestleMania 20 with Brian Byrne from Envy on the Coast. We talked about WrestleMania 20 and Mean Girls and Mastodon's <laughs> Leviathan. What a great, that, what a good great album. Yeah. here. Yeah, Eddie oh, Guerrero, Chris Benoit. Yeah, and he had never and watched Girls. wrestling. Oh well, can in you see his Chris life. Benoit nowadays? If you still watch it, you you can't. You can see him on WrestleMania 20. Really? I thought yeah. it, they did. I thought they edited all his shit out. They did didn't? they blur him out, make him Spider Man CG? <laughs> <laughs> they just made him a different Vince face. I, I thought I thought Vince McMahon. I thought they. I thought that like the WWE because you guys follow the wrestling shit a little bit more than me. But I thought yeah. Vince McMahon like literally erased. Chris Benoit and a lot of people like out of those. Well, for sure, yeah. for sure. After you know the the incident happened, but um, there's something that you know it, it's not controversial to say Chris Benoit, one of the greatest professional wrestlers that lived during the time that he was living. I know who he is, yeah. but they. I mean, when you punch up on the network, they they you can see him. Yeah. All right. So the I way they the handle that now is soon after that happened, he was erased from history. Yeah, that's yeah. what and I thought. Yeah. And then once they had the uh, the network, they had the network. They yeah. had a uh, on-demand channel, and they just took him out of all the matches and yeah, yeah, um, yeah. all the cards and everything. Then eventually they reintroduced him mm -hmm. his footage to the matches, but they take out any mention of his name when it's when he's not on screen. And if they have like hey, Chris Benoit WrestleMania twenty, uh, the description. Won't say Chris Benoit, but they, he's all over the place again. Dude, okay. now I haven't seen tw uh, WrestleMania twenty in a, in a long since, well, since it happened, really. But uh, do they show the vin like the uh, the pre match vignettes for 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 that for that match? They show all the pre match vignettes and they show the celebration with Benoit and Eddie, yeah. but they cut out when uh, his wife and his kid come into the ring. Oh, oh man! Oh my God! Sad. Yeah. But that podcast oh. is called Thrashers, Slashers, and the Road to WrestleMania, and that's on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Pod, and SoundCloud every Monday. That's... Like I said, it's, it's me and a guest. We talk about a movie and an album and a WrestleMania. And every so often I do, like, different types of shows. I've done two uh, what I call rockumentation episodes mm -hmm. where we grab a VHS music documentary, uh, documentary and just bullshit about that. And uh, a couple of weeks ago... It was me and the other members of Extinction AD 
and we had a 32 album tournament to find out our favorite thrash metal record of all time. We have the second round of that coming out in uh, from this air date, probably uh, a week or two. Amazing. All right, man. And- let, me, let me put you on the spot. Uh, favorite WrestleMania. Uh, six, eight, and you know what? Six, eight, and nine. And that's because that's like my introduction. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was uh, 10, 12, and 13. So Not that, that ones uh, haven't been better since, but those are my favorite. All right. Not, I, you know, I love nine, Caesar pa- Caesar's Palace. It's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, tell me. Yeah, I'm going to. Before I go ranting about yeah, why he's Wrestle- rant about wrestling. Before I rant about why WrestleMania 10 is the best WrestleMania, Rick, and there's no. What are you going oh, to invite, gonna invite Justin on your 10. show? I think that's what he's getting at here. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to cut this off and go. When are you inviting Justin on your show? Getting dirty. We're going to have to do it, man. You mean a riff isn't a side headlock takeover? It's something else. It's something else. Okay. It's it's it. That's. Well, th- you know what, man? Is it is it that time? Are we respectful of time? We have right to now? be respectful of times here. This is how it goes. Okay. But um, hey, Will, pop in here, man. <laughs> he's the king. I, of, he's the king of swing. I I think what they're no, I'm not. Uh, I I'm the king of segways. <laughs> I think I think what Tom and Justin are getting at here is Rick. Um, <laughs> we went places I never thought we'd go. I mean, we covered Extinction AD and Subterfuge and This Is Hell. I knew we were getting into that. I didn't know we were going to give highest praises to not only my, but many people's best friend, Tom Ander. Um, we talked about the Long Island punk hardcore scene. That was cool because we're trying to dip our fingers into that more and more lately. Tom, put some um, inspirational music under this recap. Tony right now. Balls popped in there. I'm glad he's pursuing a, a healthier. Uh, him, I, I need, <laughs> maybe you know, I, I need to do that too. No, I, I'm saying, well, I need to. Me and Tony Balls uh, wrestled once when we were in our early 20s at a part. My cousin was there. I'll try to track down people. We'll do a, a recap. But it was like two. It was just like two wild bears that were drunk on on uh, uh, old berries that had fermented, <laughs> like falling on one another. It was bad. <laughs> But I'm glad that he's moved past that. Maybe I will one day too. Um, but Rick, uh, it's in all seriousness, no, uh, you know. And we and we said, you know, all Extinction ADs uh, stuff. You have a band camp. Uh, the latest is the "It's About Time That We Had a Change" EP, um, and uh, your podcast, obviously, Stiff Shots. And let me try to get it right: Thrashers, Slashers, and the Road to WrestleMania. Shit, yeah. Okay, I, I see. I, I I get the last names right too a lot. So you're so good, Will. Uh, before we let you off the hook, one last thing we always ask people to do is recommend one older album and one newer album by any artist you like. Doesn't have to be metal or hardcore or anything uh, for the listeners. Older album, I'm gonna go with a band everybody like, if not loves, respects. But this album I think is so underrated and it's so influential to me and important to me and especially very influential on the new Extinction AD record, Testament Low. Ooh. Everybody always talks about the ritual and yep. legacy yep. and practice what you preach. Yes. Um, low, man. C-sharp, Chuck Billy just doing, uh, for at the time, death metal vocals, but still keeping his signature <clears throat> voice, and he's singing melodically also. Dude, Chuck Billy is a fucking warrior of Powerhouse. Life. Yes. Powerful. I... I do have to revisit that album. I'm not sure if I've heard it. Man. Testament I, I, always is like 
they it's like the water like that finds a way into the cracks always and those cracks are important and you should pay attention to them and don't clog them up pay pay more attention to them and open them and lead them into more testament into your ears don't clog up this man's uh, recommendations what's your new album (laughs) my new album is uh by a, a newer band from Detroit called Caw, K-A-W, like okay. the sound like a fucking bird makes. Like, like a Caw, seagull. Right? Like Caw. Yeah. So I'm they just it. put out a record called Hanging on a Wire, and uh, for, uh, Louis, the drummer, is a friend of mine. Uh, you can find them at cawdetroit.bandcamp.com. They just put out an album called Hanging on a Wire, and it's like a modern uh, metallic slash punkish take on like Kiss and Motorhead and just kind of that that Detroit style rock and roll. Okay. But like I said, oh, a bit more metallic and aggressive, but dude, it's it's a lot of fun. It's like a a nice refreshing sound. Cool. Sounds raw. I gotta look into that. Yeah. (laughs) What a good name. I'm picturing these guys just like in a parking lot somewhere like (laughs) And one of the dudes was in Zeke for a little while. Okay. I'm painfully unaware. I'm sorry. I'm a poser. Yeah, Zeke is like one of those like punk rock and roll, but like upbeat, thrashy, dirty, like sleazy type of bands. Yeah. Um, Cool shit. Like a a band you want to get in a Camaro and just like drive fast to. Love that. Yeah. I I am also unaware of that band, but I'm excited to hear this car. I almost hear this car Detroit stuff. Me too. I almost had a Camaro one time. And it fell through my fingers like most of my money does. I would have so many points <laughs> on my license if I had a faster uh, vehicle. Uh, but, Rick, um, we appreciate all of your time tonight, man. Thank you very much. Thank you for your recommendations and uh, for sharing your story with us. We appreciate it. Uh, I've said, um, uh, you know, you have the band camp for Extinction AD. You're on Good Fight Records. People want to look you up and check mm-hmm. out your stuff. Um, uh, same thing for um, This Is Hell and subterfuge people probably find nowadays it's the internet right you know I mean you go anywhere we have, we have a Facebook we don't have any music on the internet but I should probably do that but I'm lazy when it comes it's, to like shit that doesn't matter anymore it's like three bands ago man but seriously um, <laughs> Rick we appreciate your time Rick from Extinction AD uh, we're gonna be keeping our eyes out for that new Extinction AD record and tell Ian I said hi man I miss him I transferred out of our department that we used to work at work Will but, do. Maybe he'll finally uh, get his ass around to writing and recording some guitar solos for this record. Oh! <laughs> Shots fired. Get Internally, it. No, get it. I, dude, Ian, Ian is the best. He's like the best sport of being a punching bag. But, I mean, we don't sound how we sound without Ian. Good guy. Good boy. He's got uh, for, for a guy who I know to be, uh, he's, he's a good guy. Nice kid. Yes. Well, I see him on stage. I'm like, this guy's gonna, he's gonna beat me. I see him on stage. He's like, come on, he's got, he's got the stage presence, man. He loves it, man. It's great. He's got, he's into it. Um, yeah, he rocks. What me and one of my coworkers, we went to, we went to, we saw you guys at uh, Amityville Music Hall that time. Yeah, and I was like, all right, all right, Ian, man, no doubt, man. But yeah, uh, uh, good kid. <laughs> but we'll be on the lookout, man. And Rick, I said, as I said, we appreciate your time, and we're gonna be on the lookout for your podcast, your music, and all that, man. Thank you, brother. And we'll be in Thank touch. Thank you, with man. You. Sorry for uh, rambling into the wee hours of the night. On uh, the night. All good, all good, man. We're I dropped mm. out of school very long ago. <laughs> <laughs> the, only, right, the only learning I have to do is in all the bands named Craig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, I didn't think we were going there tonight. That's funny, man. All right, Rick. Catch you later, dog. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Good talking to you, man. Cheers. Have a good night, buddy.
Guys, shut up a minute. All right, okay, that was hole that was our interview with uh, Rick of Extinction AD, and this is our little outro uh, where we say go to heavyholepodcast.com to check out all of our social media sites, the Instagram, the Twitter, the Facebook. If you're old w- like me, w- uh, but most importantly, Justin, this is important. Patreon. dot com. Yeah, what is it? Slash. Heavy hole podcast, yeah, and that's then it. and skip all the tiers except for Big Fish. That's I'm what, not that's on the one it. You want. I, I, I don't pay for it. Yeah, I, you you get it for free. All right, for now. Uh, <laughs> but but the yeah the Big Fish is the tier that you want to be on. You get the bonus episodes, all that stuff. It's all on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the voice, Tom. Do you know the voicemail? Is it still memorized? Oh no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even fucking close. I don't care. Go to the website, heavyholepodcast.com. We don't have and, it. And the voicemail is there. Leave us a voicemail. Talk to us. Yep. Uh, because right now we don't even have. Well, listen, it's oh, it's it's interesting because um, I've been trying to get Will to fish with me, and he's not. He just won't do it because busy. He's doing these things, doing this thing over here. Oh, you finished that? Oh, well, there's this thing over here right now. But check it out. Thursday is coming up, and Will, you're going to come fishing with me on Thursday. You working Thursday? Yeah, yeah. All right, well.